The Walk the Mile podcast is produced on Gadigal land. I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which Skeg Starlinghurst stands, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay my respects to Elders past and present. May our reconciliation be an ongoing process of love and compassion. Hello everyone, I'm Gary Lee Lindsay, school chaplain at Skeggs Darlinghurst, and you're listening to Walk the Mile, a podcast that opens up conversations that we need to have. Today we have two guests and one of them is a student who is about to finish school and the other one is a member of staff who is staying at school. (laughs) But we've just realised, we just worked out, they've both been here for the same amount of time. So Lucia, Lucia Jalanesi is in year 12 and she's about to leave in how many weeks Lucia? Three. Three weeks left. Yeah. So you started here in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. And we worked out 2009. Nine, yeah. 2009. Do you remember Do you remember much about when you first started, what it was like? Not, not really. I only kind of um, remember very small glimpses right. of our moments in kindergarten. Um, I've been told that I could not for the life of me find where my chair was whenever I came back from um, break and um, I also remember running straight into one of the poles in the playground <laughs> and getting a really bad bump on my oh, head nice. um, but not much to be honest. And how are you feeling about finishing school? You've been here 13 years that's quite an achievement. Yeah um, I'm really excited. Great. Yeah. Excited for what are you excited about? To kind of embark on a, on a new stage of my life and um, I, I have more freedom, I guess, yeah, actually. Right. Yeah. Yeah, good on you. And Jenny Bean, Miss Bean, we'll call you Jenny today, even though Lucia's here, she's 18 <laughs> now, I think. Almost a former student. Right, almost <laughs> a former student. Jen, you've been here since 2009 I think in so, the yeah. English department. Correct. And became the head of English this year. Correct, yeah. Great. Yeah. How's that been, being the head of the department where you've been working in for quite a long time? Yeah, I look, at, um, look it's, I'm very fortunate to work in a department that has um, a lot of incredibly experienced and incredibly passionate and hardworking and dedicated staff. So I think I've certainly felt really well supported. Um, my former head of department is still in the department and she's someone who I can also lean on and mm. ask questions and... Um, look to for help and support as well. So I think it's been a nice transition in that way. Having been here so long, I guess also, um, and I, I have had some breaks. I've had some maternity leave time off and things like that. But um, but having been here so long, I guess, you know, you do have a sense of perhaps the culture of the school and mm. the values of the school. And I guess that's always helpful when you're stepping into a new role that you're not having to kind of understand and learn all of that that you sort of know a lot of just even the routines of the school when when things happen in the year and what are the busy times and all that kind of stuff so 
yeah, look, it's been good. It's certainly new challenges, certainly, um, you know, lots of things to learn, but it's been good. And was that something you thought about for a while, about heading a department, heading a, an English department? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because it's sort of, you know, when you step into roles like this, you sort of, uh, you know, are encouraged to think about and obviously do about, well, what's your vision for an English department? And and there's, you know, in some, yes, I have, have always kind of thought I'd love to lead an English department. Then I, but then I sort of, when I question myself, I think, oh, how would I articulate my vision for an English department? Because <laughs> I think it is a, um area that, you know, is dynamic and is changing and is beholden to lots of other things, NESA requirements, school requirements, you know. Um, so some, you know, you're limited perhaps in the way that you can have a vision. But I guess, you know, there's always been things I've been really passionate about, things like encouraging creative writing. And, you know, Lucia is one of the sort of students who I've got to know throughout her high school career for her. I've never taught Lucia, but um, she's done a lot of um, creative writing and competitions and workshops she's been a judge um, for the Red Room Poetry Competition she's developing a culture where students feel like there are ways that they can you know be independent Lucia talked about being independent being independent experiment creatively where they can become confident as writers with their voice you know I think it's really important the types of texts we give students and that they excite students for me literature is a great I know your podcast is called Walk the Mile and for me literature is something that walks with me yeah, on my right. on my kind of life journey and I guess in for me like that idea that I can give you know our department can help give that gift to the students we teach too of that love or nourishment of literature is something that will walk with them um, throughout yeah. their life too yeah and the reason why I've asked you both to be on this podcast today is about English and about literature because you being a teacher Jen and being the head of English but as you've also pointed out Lucia, over the years that I've known her, even since primary school, has uh, been known, <laughs> if you don't mind me saying this, Lucia, but you've been known for some of the great writings you've done and some of the creative work you've, you've been able to present. For you, Lucia, what uh, does writing give to you, would you say? Well, I think I've always been drawn to kind of mystery and sadness, and I myself have quite a melancholic temperament and <laughs> writing for me is kind of um, a way to express and explore that kind of sensibility and that understanding um, of the world. Right. And so it's, is it therapeutical for you, would you say? Yeah, I'd say so. And I think it's really um, made me notice things about character and about the human experience that I wouldn't necessarily have been aware of or attuned to if I hadn't kind of started writing or, or reading too, right. really. And, and obviously you love reading, you enjoy reading. I, yeah, I do. You, and what do you read, a, a wide variety of things or is there a certain type of literature that you enjoy more? Um, I really love uh, poetry and short stories, mm -hmm. um, but I do, I love reading all kinds of literature. I'm a bit sad because um, <laughs> <laughs> during the HSC it's been very hard to read just for leisure yeah. because um, there's just so so many assignments, so many um, exams that you have to focus all your intellectual energy towards and so it's very hard to kind of actually relax into um, a book or, or a short story. But that's one thing I'm really enjoying. I'm really excited um, to start again when I um, leave school, is yeah, reading right. again yeah, right. <laughs> for enjoyment. So there's this difference between reading 
the reading that you might do for pleasure or the reading that you might choose to do yeah compared to the reading that you you're talking about you have to do in in terms of subjects and mm. for your hsc and it's quite as you as you're talking about it's quite a different type of thing it's not yeah. just reading because we do try to encourage people to read don't we but sometimes i guess people don't know why is that would that be true like why should i read what's the importance of me you know so many people saying that i know oh, i don't read I'm, I'm not a big reader of books but you both of you are talking about the benefit yeah. some sort of benefit in reading whatever it is that you're reading hmm. what are those what are those benefits you've talked about it being a a way of looking into life and sort yeah. of diving into those things which you might not necessarily have gone into what are the other benefits of reading well i think it just makes you realize that the world is incredibly complex and full of existential uncertainty um but it's also pretty magnificent yeah right um yeah great i think it's pretty cliched but that idea that reading can make you feel less alone Mm. sometimes too that that you know um we all you know go through struggles and difficult times and things that might make us question ourselves and often i think powerful literature shows that that's something that you know humans do go through yeah. you know throughout time you know yeah. if you look at I mean again it's a cliche but you know if you look at the sort of um, continued relevance of Shakespeare and why Shakespeare never seems to go out of fashion is because his you know his questions about love about family about you know daughters rebelling against their fathers about you know people feeling angry and bitter about you know loss and suffering like those those um, emotions and those kind of experiences universal and Mm. you know they're going to speak to people again and again so i think i think that kind of solace and comfort that literature can provide is really um you know really powerful yeah i like that idea what you say you know you you don't feel alone and that that, that there's something about books which might draw you to understand that you are part of this whole human race Mm. (laughs) so to speak Mm. and what about um your poetry because I know you've been you've you've won awards for your poetry and it's been recognized what is it about poetry what, what is it how's that different to say writing a short story or just writing down writing in your journal even or or is it similar is it maybe it's not different I um I think it's similar in, in some ways but also poetry um more maybe than uh, prose, um, invites you to see uh, kind of comparisons that you may never have made before um, and kind of experimentation with language that you might never have uh, kind of thought about, which actually um, really expresses exactly how you feel. And it's often quite startling because you never kind of expected that that, that those words or mm-hmm. that arrangement of words would so perfectly express yeah, right. um, a certain human experience. Right. And do you have to go searching for those words sometimes or is it just, do you feel like it flows? No, absolutely. Um, when I'm writing, I edit and edit and edit um, the placement of words, the, the words themselves. The thesaurus is my best friend. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. 
Right. I once remember hearing um, the Australian poet Les Murray at a writers' festival talk about how he might sometimes spend a whole day looking for the one particular yeah. word that's the right fit for a poem. You know, he wanted something to describe that colour, and it took him a day to find. You know, yeah. realise it was tangerine that he needed, not yeah. <laughs> orange. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. No, that's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I guess I think you know, if I was to sit down and write a poem, I'd sort of imagine myself sitting on a grassy hill looking into the sky. <laughs> Just waiting for the words to come. <laughs> yeah. And there's a real art to it, isn't there? There's a real yeah. technique to it. And just going on to that, Jen, in terms of how you teach English here at school, you want, I'm guessing you want the students to have that type of passion or vision that Lucia is talking about. It's an, as an expression, their, their creative writing or their poetry mm. is something that's coming from them. Mm. But then you're also teaching techniques and you're also teaching, I'm guessing you're teaching some sort of method as well. Mm. So how do those two things come together? Like if it is just an expression of you, what is it that you're actually teaching that still gives them, gives people that freedom to do that? I think particularly with poetry, um, you know, there's so many different types of poems and they have quite specific forms. So that actually gives you really specific um features and techniques to latch on. And often, you know, I, I know in year nine and year eight, um, we do creative poetry assessments. Um, and a lot of that's about, you know, you might be modeling poems. So in year eight, they focus on poems about place. And so they read lots of poems about place and they think about how imagery, um, the appeal to the senses has really helped to bring a place alive. And then they write their own poem about a place. So they're really sort of having looked at poems, they're then trying to think, well, okay, that poet used, you know, olfactory, which is smell imagery really well. How could I use olfactory imagery when I'm writing about King Street, Newtown, or a place that's real to me, familiar right. with me? Right. In year nine, when we do dramatic monologues, um, again, the students will have looked at monologue writing and the way that a monologue speaks and has a character speaking and presenting, and then they get the chance to think, well, you know, and we encourage them to use characters from history or literature and how would they take that voice and write a monologue. I think the thing with um, poetry particularly as well um, is that Lucia mentioned before the idea that you can sort of go into deep and melancholic and serious spaces, but you can also go into really playful and fun spaces. Mm. Um, I'm going to embarrass Lucia by reading a tiny bit from a poem she wrote in Year 9. <laughs> this oh is my. a poem that she won a competition, competition for many years ago. But, you know, um, it was actually incredibly playful and fun. And in this poem, she'd personified a broken umbrella, which was sitting in a hallway. And she'd, you know, use that broken umbrella. Imagine what the life of that broken umbrella was. And just in a couple of lines, she writes about how for the umbre umbrella, you like to remember the sweetest days when you were a contender. That time you kissed the Japanese parasol with the slender bamboo pine in the plastic bucket and the indoor aquatic centre. So you can see, brilliant. see yeah. a lot of humour there. Yeah. She's personified this love affair between these umbrellas in quite an absurd setting of an yeah. aquatic centre, but that's where yeah. our umbrellas get stored, don't they, when we go for a swim? That's right. um, and I think that idea that poetry actually can be very playful. And it is thinking about that word, those words and the arrangement of words and how you might use that to say something about you know, human emotions or human experiences, mm. but you can also do that mm. in a really playful way. And I think that's the yeah. fun part of doing poetry yeah. in class as well. And the fun, and just when you were reading that, just that short bit, you know, it created a picture for me just as you were, as you were speaking those words. Mm. I could see, you know, those umbrellas and could see what they were And that's what you're trying to do, isn't it? You're trying to create a picture for people. It's different to what we might call visual art. It would be a photo or a painting. Yeah. 
people can look at it and interpret it in a certain way, mm. doing the same thing with words. And words are mm. powerful things and to be able to use those words in such a way and to create those images in such a way mm. is, uh, is a real skill. And I think that's probably one of the big maybe misunderstandings about poetry and particularly perhaps when young students are studying poetry or trying to write poetry that often there's this instinct to go to the abstract, to go to just emotions. I feel love, I feel excited, I feel crushed, but actually the best poems are really very concrete. They're set in a, you know, in a real kind of, you know, they create a picture, as you say, Gary, that you can see things. And yes, they're saying things about those abstract emotions, but they're saying them in a concrete way that we can visualize and we can imagine. So I think as teachers, part of the challenge is often moving students from the abstract where they want to write about emotions and feelings to to think about how do they show those emotions or feelings in quite a concrete, or in a particular scenario or a particular setting or a particular place and yeah, the way they convey them. I mean, just as we're talking now, you know, English sounds very exciting. <laughs> Pop in any time, Gary. Pop in any time. <laughs> but sometimes I hear students say uh, English. And it's just, it is the, the subject that you have to do throughout your whole schooling life here, isn't it? You know, you don't get a choice even in year 11 and 12, you still have to do English. What is it that, that might stop the, the passion? We've pointed out, pointed out the things which can, you know, which are exciting about it. Why, why do people have that attitude, do you think? Is it because of the longevity of doing it? Is it because English? Yeah, I've heard people say, yeah, I can speak English. Why do I, you know, I can spell? <laughs> What's the problem? I, th- I mean, do you, do you have ideas? I have ideas, Lucia, but if you... <laughs> you can go first, you go. Um, I think perhaps specifically during the HSC, people just become very burnt out yeah, and right. exhausted and uh, over the constant assessments. Um, and so that can, can suck the life of any subject, really. Yeah, right. Um, well, I... I for me as well that um, the reason English is one of the most challenging subjects is that it's not a black and white right yeah, wrong yeah. subject that it's a subject where rarely there's an obvious correct answer it's a subject where even when you're writing analytically and particularly when you're writing creatively you have to give something of yourself yeah, you know right. I think it really does require that emotional investment yeah. obviously I, I was always a passionate English student at school but I, I still remember when I was at school, I would always do my maths homework first because it was easy because maths, I just had to do a few problems. I could get the answers right. I was like, bam, bam. Not always right. Sometimes I got them wrong. But, but I could, I could get, go through the process. Whereas, whereas if I had to write an English essay mm. or an English short story, I really had to stop and think and I really had to kind of spend time really sort of digging into myself to think, what do I want to say here? Yeah, and right. how do I want to approach this? So you have to become a bit vulnerable in a way. I think it is that vulnerability. It's the vulnerability. I think it's that investment of time. Yeah. Um, I think the vulnerability is also why for students sometimes it can feel particularly hard or, you know, when they get marks that they might not be happy about, they yeah. can think, well, I don't, you know, that that was really good. That was me. That was me on the yeah. page. Whereas yeah. I don't think students find, feel, well, I don't know, but I imagine maybe it's less personal in, in maths yeah. or science where there's that black and white yeah. right and wrong answer. They don't take it so personally. Is when they feel like their teacher didn't like their essay or didn't like their poem. Yeah. Or <laughs> and I've heard, you yeah. know, my office is next door to the English <laughs> staff room and I see a number of students going up and asking, what could I do to have got a better mark in this mm. English essay? Mm. So it's, it's 
tricky, isn't it, when you're talking about being an expression of yourself? Mm. Do you think they're actually asking, what should have I written? What sentences should have I put in to have got the better mark here? But actually the, the writing of a poem or a story or whatever mm. is an expression of yourself. And if that's, mm. it, how do you mark that? How do you mm. gauge that? It's very tricky. And I, look, and I think as English teachers, and like, and I agree with Lucia that the expectations of the HSC and the pace of the HSC course and um, put pressures that make this very hard to do. But as English teachers, we, we would probably love less time to be focused on that product. This is what, what are the sentences and more time focused on the thinking. Yeah. And unfortunately, that's the stuff that you can't see. But, but you know, year, year after year, the students who I think get the most out of their English and who probably do the best are those students who, again, it's really cliche, um, but have read the books two or three yeah. times, who have stopped and, and spent, maybe before they start writing anything, they might just spend an hour thinking about what's this question really mm. asking. Mm. You can't obviously do that in the actual HSC, so you have to do all that thinking beforehand. But I think our world also works against that thinking time too because yeah. there's so many distractions um, and... We're all very kind of goal focused and we want to get that essay done and then we want to go and do our other homework and mm. sport and jobs and all these other things we have to do. Um, but really that, that sort of, I mean, it's, it's like in chapel where we have that time to think and meditate and, you know, really deep responses to literature mm. come from that time spent thinking mm. yeah. and meditating on ideas. And yeah. I guess that can be scary for some people, can't it, to actually, even to put it on paper, to write mm. down your thoughts, it's pretty... Yeah. Um, you know, maybe the next step is actually speaking to someone and sharing who you are. But to mm. put it on paper is a little bit safer, but mm. you're still doing that, isn't it? it, it mm. Aren't you? Sorry. You're still doing that, aren't you? Mm. <laughs> yeah. And I think the teachers of Year 12 students would say they're the best conversations. When they have students come to talk to them one on one, the conversations that are about which sentence should I write are really limiting. Mm. But those conversations where a student comes and says, I've got this idea about a text. I was thinking that I might argue this. They're fantastic conversations because they're conversations where a student's really engaging and unpacking and mm. and developing that understanding for themselves rather yeah. than perhaps wanting to memorise or learn a sentence that... Sure. Yeah. yeah that's good. Yeah. Speaking of being vulnerable, <laughs> can you think of a book that you've read that it's really moved you? So, you know, it really touched you. Like when I think of... As you said, you know, the idea of reading, or for me, again, is, uh, is something that, that moves me, that I want to read, that I'm going back into the story. Sometimes, I, I don't know if you ever do this, but I'll start reading stories, I'll start reading books, and I think, well, I continue, and I keep going, come on, it's got to get better some stage. It just, just seems like a story for no reason. But there are other books, you know, it can bring me to tears sometimes, and movies, or songs, or whatever it might be. Have you got a, each of you, have you got a, a book or something that's stuck with you in some ways? And, and why is it stuck with you? I was actually um, reading an E. Cummings poem last night. It was a love poem. And there is this exquisite line at the end, which if I can remember, I believe it's, no one, not even the rain, has such small hands. Yeah. And I thought that that was the most beautiful line and that really deeply moved me. What does it say to you, Lucia? Um, 
if you don't mind me asking. <laughs> I think it's, again, just the um, kind of expression of something quite subliminal um, and very deep using language, mm. which nails it perfectly. Mm, yeah, right. Um, and I think... Um, I think Yeats actually said, um, what can be explained is not poetry. Yeah, right. Which is another important thing to kind of think about with poetry is that it doesn't necessarily have to be entirely explained. It's just the kind of deep emotional response to it. So it's almost like saying there are some things we just don't have words for. Yeah. But somehow poets manage to articulate it. Putting words Mm. together. Yeah. Yeah. I love that idea. Mm. I think also, I mean, I was having this debate with some of my year 11 students yesterday saying, why don't the writers just tell me what they think? (laughs) 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 Just just tell me what the answer is. Um, And, you know, and I think the best literature also, and particularly a lot of postmodern contemporary literature, the best types of that writing, they don't give us answers. But they actually, what they do is provoke us to wonder and to think yeah. and you know when I hear that line that you just read Lucia I think well you know what are the small hands and is that an image of comfort or is that an image of connection or is that an image like you know so mm. that idea that literature actually and I think again it's probably a reason students find it challenging but you know great literature will make us question and mm. and wonder and, mm. and you know this the same with films often the sign for me of a great film is a film I'm still thinking about three days later yeah. where I'm thinking what was that yeah. really meaning what was that saying yeah yeah no I agree and can you think of one Jen a book yeah I was just seeing a couple I mean one of my favorite books um has always been Ian McEwan's Atonement and I think um Ian McEwan kind of writes these poignant moments um just so powerfully and in Atonement you know the story is called Atonement because it's sort of the the book is this Um, process of the central character who narrates it trying to um, make up for or atone for a sin Um, and that idea that something she's done which has led to tragic consequences for people she loved um, you know and the loss of these amazing romances and um, to me it was just you know it's got sort of all the best things of a romance novel plus this sort of deep kind of like thought about you know what is it like when we carry the burden of mistakes Mm, we've made mm. and what is it like when we've um choices we've made or things that we've done have hurt other people um, yeah, and yeah I mean I love yeah I also think his opening to um, Enduring Love is one of the most powerful kind of bits of contemporary fiction I've read and it's the rest of the book is a bit funny but in Enduring Love you start with this terrible tragic scene of like a child on a um, hot air balloon and four men grab the string and it's flying away and four men grab the strings of the hot air balloon to try and protect the child and they're lifted up into the air and one by one they let go until one is still left there. And I'm not, I'm not going to spoil the opening, but um, <laughs> but it's just this sort of, you know, there's all these moral kind of levels to that mm. and all of these tragic mm. elements and all of these kind of... But just as a reader, I remember being just captivated by that opening and thinking, oh, God, what do you do? What do you do? And um, to be able to render that into life. You know, and again, that's a sort of... Not a situation that's going to happen very often, but... But it makes you think about other things, you know, yeah. where we might have moral responsibility or where we might, do we let other people down? And, yeah. you know, I think, you know, yeah, Ian McEwan's writing has often resonated really strongly with me. A lot of people would 
probably spend more time reading, this is my guess, more time reading stuff on social media than they would a book. So, you know, they'll read news bites or stuff on Instagram, whatever. And a lot of that stuff is either just nothing. <laughs> well, not nothing, but, you know, it doesn't have what we're talking about. It doesn't, have, it doesn't necessarily get you to reflect. Or it can be so in your face, you know, be kind, do this, be, you know, be grateful today or whatever. So the, the message is quite explicit. And so there's something missing in between, I feel. And this is what you're saying, I guess, that, that literature, good literature, gets you to, to wonder. You use that word, wonder. I love that. Do you think that people are fearful of wondering more these days? I think um, the social media culture does really disturb me because I think uh, I really notice that Deep reflection and listening has um, kind of really um, decreased. Um, and uh, this is a problem not only kind of for comprehension and reading, but just for understanding other people mm. and listening and to other people and deeply reflecting about just human interaction. Um, and I think there's a, there's a tendency with social media for everything to be quite shallow mm. um, because of, as you said, just the very short messages um, and everything's very condensed. There's a kind of uh, a shallowness that, that's, um, that happens as a result of that. And I think that has a big impact mm. um, on, on life. Yeah. It's, do, you, do you think it sort of creates a way of, of thinking or encourages a certain way of thinking that we can keep to that level? Of just getting news bites or, you know, the latest celebrity yeah. goings on or um, look at what this person's having for lunch. Yeah. Compared to getting in a, as you say, just a conversation. Yeah. You know, having a conversation with someone, getting to know somebody and that has, going back to that, you know, you talk about the subliminal yeah. Uh, I love that word. It's a good word here. That subliminal response within you and something you can't explain. You know, when you've had a good conversation with someone or you spent time with people, just like we're doing now. Mm-hmm. And you think that's good, but you can't actually explain it. But it, you know that it's a, it's a gift, mm-hmm. that it's, it's something precious, that you can't just make it up, that it's there. Oh, yeah, I think it's hugely dangerous. And I think, you know, obviously there's been lots, um, you know, written about this in the way... You know, we've had emergence of populist kind of political beliefs because there's not that nuance and depth anymore. I think mm. it's also interesting to think in terms of, you know, lots of people will talk about how the human species makes sense of the world through narrative. Yeah. And so narrative and storytelling and, you know, yeah. is the way we make sense of what we see as fair or how we think power structures should operate. Um, and I think when narratives become so reduced and can be controlled by yeah. kind of certain voices that that's really really scary and limiting because it is when we hear you know 
you know, I mean, I think, you know, you look at something, um, for example, like just uh, refugee politics in Australia, it's when, it's when we actually hear the story of real human lives yeah. and the Billa Leela, yeah, I say yeah, that name yeah. right, family captured the, I think, the nation's heart because we got to know them as a family and we got yeah. to know their story and we got to know their narrative and they yeah. stopped becoming just numbers and just, you know, this is the number and this is the this. Yeah. They became real people in a story and that made people, I think, think differently about perhaps the way we might treat um, refugees who arrive in Australia. So I think, you know, the reduction of narrative and the reduction of the stories Mm. we tell Mm. through social media is, yeah, I think really kind of dangerous and worrying. Um, Look, I I do think there's a growing awareness of that. So, I mean, there's optimistic signs that people are choosing to switch off or to balance it with more nuanced, more developed stories. Um, but it's, look, it's obviously going to be interesting to think about how yeah, how that continues for the Definitely. next 10 years or so. Definitely. Yeah. Something else I've noticed too is that you can have those narratives, but the more and more writings, and I think I do it more too, which I have to be more aware of, is that you can tell a story, but then there's often a, a sort of a moral explanation at the end without leaving it to the listener. You know what I mean? So, you know, tell a story and then... So this story is about... Or the lesson you should learn from this mm. is that... The coda. The coda. <laughs> yeah, the coda. Which, I don't know. I think I agree with you, Jen. I think sometimes it, it loses that sense of wonder then, isn't it? Like, mm. this story is about... It's not open for your interpretation. This is the right interpretation of this story. And, of course, the person who's created it might have had an idea to begin with. Mm. But as people, and having our own histories and our own experiences, we, like a piece of art, we can hear stories however we want to hear them and make up our minds of what it does to you as you're talking about, you know, those, those bits and pieces. Hmm. My year 11 class would be happy though, because you would have given them the answer. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Like, if, why, why don't all writers do that? <laughs> Just in case you wanted to know, that's what the story was about. (laughs) Did you find that in class? Like, do you find that sometimes, like as a student, do you you find uh, that you don't want the answer, Lucia? Or do you you feel like there's a pressure, you're waiting for the answer from the teacher? Or when you've studied English for so long here at at Skeggs... Mm. Do you wish sometimes that it was just sort of left or do you want, would you rather it being, this is what it is? Um, I really enjoy reflecting very deeply about um, literature. So I would, I, I prefer it to be kind of, um, I'd prefer to have time to kind of think about, um, about the, the um, message in the story and then discuss it and then yeah. maybe have some sort of some answers but um, not a kind of firm direction as to exactly what mm. because writing is so it's so open to mm. to different um, understandings mm. and is that, what, is that would that be how you would create your lessons Jen is that how would you would there be this intent in creating a lesson where you would want kids to mm. to wonder to reflect yeah, look absolutely you know and I think that there's you know I would always um, 
want there to be time where the students might be doing that independently, thinking, pro- you know, it's a form of, I mean, we don't think of English as a problem-solving subject, but actually it completely is because, yeah, you know, right. whenever you're presented with a text, it's sort of a problem to solve in the yeah. same way you might have a maths equation or a scientific problem to solve. Um, so, yeah, I would want students wrangling with that and I would, um, you know, and they might do that individually, they might do that in groups. You know, unfortunately, it is sort of unfortunate that some of the demands, I think, of the HSC, you know, require that students do need to kind of develop quite finessed Mm. lines of argument so Mm. unfortunately sometimes I do think we feel like in the senior years you then get to the point where like okay right well as you do go here's the meaning (laughs) (laughs) and you know now you know you've had to go wondering and questioning and and here we go um I think it's interesting too I mean a couple few years ago um they introduced a text type into the HSC course called discursive writing and there was a lot of contention about what that meant but um and, and unfortunately that text type is only really exists in one area of the HSC, but it is that idea of writing that might be a, a blend of personal opinion, reflection, anecdotes, um, a bit of analysis or discussion of text, mm. but certainly not that same rigidity of an essay structure. Um, it, it's very hard to kind of do that, do that um, text type justice, I think, in the HSC. But I do think it's interesting that when we look at writing, just writing more broadly, you know, when you read literary journals or you read The Good Weekend even or, um, you know, there is a move towards kind of valuing personal voices, I think, yeah. in, in writing. Um, the Extension 2 course also brought in a new text type, Creative Nonfiction, a few years ago, which again sort of values that kind of lending effect in fiction. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, you know, again, I think it's going to take a while before it really... Well, I don't... I'm not even sure if it could sort of work in the HSC, but that idea that you might have... A more personal response to literature yeah. that you might be able yeah. to write a bit about how it resonates with you kind of personally yeah. um, I had a student last year for the HSE who wrote um, a discursive about love and romance and she you know started off with comparisons about what she'd learned about love and romance from watching The Bachelor and then linked it to sort of ideas about Eros and Agape love from Auden's poetry because we'd studied Auden in year 11 um, so she was able to kind of move personally through quite popular culture texts to um, our more sort of uh, mm. classical texts that we'd studied in class. But, you know, that idea of a personal voice is, yeah. I think, really valuable. But yeah. not, as, as I said, unfortunately, there's only sort of so much scope for it at the moment in the current yeah. kind of HSC. Lechina, here you are at the brink yeah. <laughs> of finishing your school life. Mm-hmm. Is where you're going in terms of studies or career or what? hope for how how has English influenced that or how has literature influenced that or has it influenced that should I say well I will definitely continue to write and to to read a lot Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure exactly what I want to do Mm. um, when I leave school I'm gonna take the year off next year which will be very nice. Just have so, a break. Yeah, I have lots of time to write and read. Great. Um, and then I'll probably do arts at Sydney Uni and, and see how I go. But it'll definitely, I will definitely continue to um, to pursue writing and reading. Great. Look forward to it. Would you ever consider writing um, a novel or, or what would you like to write? Poetry? What? Yeah, poetry or short stories maybe. Well, and that's the sort of thing you'd like to get published one day? Perhaps, I'll see how I go. 
I'm sure it'd be great. What about we always joked, um, I mean, when, you know, many of us in the English department read Lucia's work in, as I say, year eight or nine, thought she could be publishing this now. <laughs> this is a lot better than a lot of the published work out there. So, um, look, yeah. I, you know, I'm really excited to see where a writer like um, Lucia ends up. It's And it, look, it's an interesting time, I think, for writers. I mean, I don't think it... It's a surprise to anyone to know there's not many poets who make a living from being a poet. Mm. Um, and um, but but you know there are sort of I think ways that you can be a writer and do other things as well. Um, but look, I mean that's huge questions, isn't it? About kind of the arts and the funding mm. of the arts and the way as yeah. a society we choose to support the arts or not. And again, I get I guess from my perspective, and I'd imagine from art teachers' perspective, you know, like that idea of how our society values the arts and how, you know, I I'm not going to be able to remember any of the, those classic quotes now, but how, you know, without kind of the arts, is it really a civilization? Are you really kind of um, encouraging people to reflect, to, to sort of consider things that if, if we become so kind of rationalist and utilitarian that we don't value the arts and we don't commit money to yeah. it, then we sort of, yeah. we're stripping our society of those things that, um, make us question what it is to be human, make us question how we can be better humans or how we can interact with people differently, yeah. so that they prevent us from kind of sharing and learning about other people's experiences. You know, um, Lucia was talking about that in terms of the complexity of the world, but it's often through art or through film or through, um, you know, reading that we learn about how other people might have experienced the world, yeah, people from really different course. backgrounds. So I think, you know, I think sort of, that sort of support of the arts is so important because we will we will end up with that limited narrative and that kind of mm. Twitter feed or whatever mm. if we don't, as a society, yeah, make conscious right. efforts to really support the arts. That's right. I mean, we could go on for a while <laughs> talking about this and how it has created the world we live in now, but maybe that can be part two. <laughs> I can't wait, Gary. <laughs> Did you always have aspirations of doing something... With your love of English? Um, yeah. Like I th look, well, when I was um, younger than a chair, when I was probably 10 or something, my, my grand vision for my life was to be an Olympic swimmer and then to be a famous actress and then to be a great writer. So I was, you know, searching for um, <laughs> fame on all fronts. But, um, oh, look, I thought, yeah, I mean, I think as a young person I sort of would have liked to write. I actually, I think... And I think this probably happens to a lot of young people. I think I became self-conscious about my yeah. writing in my adolescence. Yeah, I think right. I always was a really passionate English student, but I think I became so aware of how um, impressive and complex, um, you know, professional writing was that I just sort of got to the point I thought, I can never do that. I can't, you know, and I mm. became, thought, oh, my stuff's really mm. adolescent. So I actually probably became really self-conscious of my own writing. I've done yeah. a few writing courses just to help my teaching since then. I've enjoyed that, but I do feel like, Writing also demands, I mean, I was saying before in some ways that you, you draw so deeply from your own will yeah, and make yourself vulnerable. I, right. I've almost sort of, when I've done it, I've thought, oh, I don't know yeah. if I can do this. I don't know if I can be a mum and yeah. be a teacher and do all the other things I need to do with my life and, and scratch at those wounds of whatever is in yeah. that well. Yeah. Um, but I do, you know, but I have, you know, I did English literature as part of my university degree and... Um, also did a law degree and I think you know I, I started teaching straight out of uni because I think I knew that I was passionate about literature and I also just I'd worked with young people quite a lot at uni as on school camps and a debating coach and in other capacities and 
And I think I just really loved being able to share things that I was yeah, passionate yeah, about. Right. So I think that combination of a passion for kind of language and literature and also that kind of idea of the energy and the enjoyment you get from sharing that with young people, that was sort of what I think led me into teaching. That's great. Well, thank you very much, both of you. All the best for your future, Lucia. <laughs> As you finish here, we're going to miss you. I've, I've known Lucia ever since she was very small, the last 13 years. Mm. So it's always, it's always, I mean, it's always sad to see any students go, but particularly those ones who I knew since kindergarten and your family and all of your family as well. Yeah. And best for your future too, Miss. Oh, back again next year? <laughs> back again. Back next again. Year. We can do version three next year? That's right. That's right. <laughs> Let's hope so. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Hope you're all doing well. Please let me know if you've got any questions that you want me to pass on to the chair or Jen about anything. Any feedback is always welcome. Take care and see you soon. Bye.